Maybe I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball here, Martin, because I think authenticity is bullshit. I know it's something that we talk about, and I know that, you know, a lot of leaders that I coach as well are like, you know, I want to be authentic and and our people, you know, the people that I lead want want authentic leaders. And and I'm I'm saying yes, yes, but do they really want you to be authentic when what you want to do is scream at everyone to tell them to shut up and 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 go away? Do they really want to know? Do they really want your, you know, when you're not having a good day to, for you to be able to, to, to really say and do the things that you really want to say? And of course, the answer is no. Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we help you navigate the emotional and promotional sides of the job search so you can change careers with confidence. My name is Martin McGovern, founder and lead coach at Career Therapy, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Please welcome DDS Dobson-Smith to the podcast. DDS is the founder of Soul Trained, a certified executive coach, a neuro-linguistic psychotherapist, and the author of You Can Be Yourself Here. DDS helps leaders get out of the weeds of their comfort zones and into places they didn't know they needed to go. Today we discuss why authenticity is bullshit, how you can learn to love your inner critic, the benefits of diversity and inclusion, how the great resignation is actually a great realization, and what we need to do to foster more belonging in the workplace. Thank you for tuning into this episode and supporting the show. Please like, subscribe, share, and enjoy our conversation with DDS Dobson-Smith. Well, DDS, I'm so appreciative of you joining us today. Um, there's so much that I want to get into uh, and talk to you about. But first, I'm just going to toss your book up here. Can you be yourself here? Uh, give you a little bit of a, a push at the beginning of the episode. But um, as we get into this, I want to kick us off with uh, the idea of authenticity. This comes up a lot in the people that I coach. And as we dig into the ideas here around um, being able to be yourself, what do you sort of feel authenticity looks like in the workplace? Is it the same as what it looks like in our normal lives? Is it a little bit different? What, what's your sort of view on authenticity? We'll, we'll start things off there. Wow. Um, I, well, maybe I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball here, Martin, because I think authenticity is bullshit. <laughs> because because we, I, I know it's something that we talk about, and I know that you know a lot of leaders that I coach as well are like, you know, I want to be authentic and and our people, you know, the people that I lead want want authentic leaders, and and I'm I'm saying yes, yes, but. Do they really want you to be authentic when what you want to do is scream at everyone to tell them to shut up and, and, and go away? Do they really want to know? Do they really want your, you know, when you're not having a good day to, for you to be able to, to, to really say and do the things that you really want to say? And of course, the answer is no. So actually, what I prefer to, to talk about with, with the people I coach and the people that I work with is congruence. And, um, and, and being, being more in more, uh, what I mean by that is being in, in deeper levels of rapport with yourself so that actually what, what is about, um, what, what leadership to me is, and in fact, this is the, the title of my second book, which is leadership as a behavior, not a title awesome. is the idea that it, it's, it, it's about, um, being able to bring more humanity to your leadership is what's going to make you a person worth following. And so being, it's not about how do I be a great leader? It's about how, how do I be a decent human being? And, and, and I, and I say it's about deeper levels of self-awareness so that you can be yourself fully you, but with increasing amounts of skill and choice so um, I think authenticity is about, or, or congruence, as I, I would prefer, is, is about really understanding and really knowing and owning where it is that you are at so that you can make some appropriate choices about how, when, with whom you show up. 
I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> I really do. Uh, having come from marketing and advertising, you know, all of this authenticity and and a lot of these conversations and toxic positivity and everything that's out there, it, it just sort of gets under my skin after a while. And like, you know, there's this concept um, of during the job search and when you're making a big career transition or a life transition of any sort, where you have this odd pressure to both know yourself perfectly while you're in the most uh, transitional, uh, everything's up in the air, life is a mess moment of your life, right? It's like, we don't typically understand ourselves when things are going well, let alone when things are going terribly, right? And usually people are job searching when they're, you know, going through some hard times. And I always get this, um, this pushback from people when they're like, how do I be myself if the way that I feel is crappy, is I feel like an imposter, is I feel insecure, right? And so I love that you're saying like the self-awareness piece is what's so important here and really pushing towards that. But how do we actually get to know ourselves, right? Like how do we get to that wonderful know thyself place? Yeah, it's really interesting you should say that, Martin, because I have a tattoo. I mean, you can see that I have tattoos everywhere. I have one here that it that is 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 a written tattoo in typewriter font that says, "Know thyself, love thy neighbor, do good works," and awesome. and so you know what is the process of so I, I you know I, I also talk about how self awareness um, uh, followed by self acceptance is what will lead to self-development. Like you can't have development without self-acceptance and without self-awareness. And so how do you become increasingly self-aware? Well, that's just an ongoing process, right? I don't think it's a, a box that gets ticked to say, I am now self-aware. It's like if somebody calls themselves woke or smart, <laughs> then immediately they're not woke or smart, right? So it's like, I, when as soon as somebody says, I am self-aware, or if somebody says, I'm an ally, it's just like, oh, I, I don't know that that's something that you can self-proclaim, right? Like, I think it's a, it's a gift that gets bestowed upon us by other people. But what we can do is have a commitment to um, opening up our blind spots. We can have a commitment to learning about the experiences of other people um, that are different to us. We can have, uh, we can we can build a support team around us, whether that is a coach or a therapist or mentors or advocates, people that are going to help us to see things that we don't currently see. That's that's what is that's that are just some of the mechanisms that we can use or leverage to become increasingly self-aware. That's so important to be able to see things that we can't currently see, because I do think that um, when we're in our heads looking out, right, we're in this awful place <laughs> sometimes where we just we have such a limited understanding um, and it's all through these like you know, goggles of however we're feeling that day. And typically, again, when you're in a state of, of change, um, the goggles aren't very helpful, right? And I, I recall years ago, I was in a situation where I was just complaining constantly at work. And I had a good friend at the time who thankfully pulled me aside and said, you either have to accept your life or change your life, but you got to stop this complaining. And I think we need to have those people who can be brutally honest with us and push us in certain directions. And so for someone who is in that position, though, you know, the job search is very isolating. And a lot of people, maybe they even have a job, but they're remote, right? How do you sort of see the, you know, all this change that's happened with hybrid work and remote work? How has that impacted the sense of belonging that people have and the connection that they have to themselves in the, as we get more and more isolated? Well, I, I mean, uh, you know, this is, I have a very unique, well, maybe it's not unique. I'm thinking it's unique. I have a, I have a, I have a personal perspective on this, whether it's unique or not, I don't know. But, um, you know, I, I hear a lot of managers, leaders, teammates, talking about how hard it is to to build connection um, in a in a hybrid or remote working world and i say yes it yes it is and 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 it's not impossible and i know it's not impossible um, because i 
I, as, as well as being an executive coach and uh, having my own, you know, consultancy called Soul Trained, I'm also a licensed therapist and I um, have a clinical practice. Some of those patients, and in fact, some of my coaching clients, I have never met in person. And I would say that we have, and I, and this isn't just a self-report, this is, you know, from those patients and those clients would say that I've had some of my most profound and meaningful conversations with people I've never met. So it, it is, it is not impossible. Um, uh, it's not necessarily easy be, and, uh, because we have been programmed to build relationships and connections in a certain way. And, and that, you know, the convenience of the water cooler or the convenience of hanging outside a meeting room, waiting to get in because meetings never finish on time. And the, 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 they're those moments where we get to be sociable or somebody says, let's go to the pub or let's go to the bar or let's go out to lunch. We have to create new ways of doing that now that, that, that aren't um, second nature to us because they haven't been handed down in corporate culture folklore. So we're now, what we're doing is we're creating new ways of being and doing um, and having relationships. So it just takes a little bit of thought and it takes conscious effort, just like, um, just like any new habit or new behavior, it feels clunky, awkward, and weird at first until it doesn't feel clunky, awkward, and weird. You know, I mean, I remember the very first day I ever walked into a gym and I was like, I do not belong in this place. Because I was like, I don't know how that works. I don't know what the etiquette is. I don't know if I'm allowed to sweat. I, there's people making weird noises. <laughs> like, what is going on here? And, 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 then, and then after a while, once you've figured out your rhythm and once you've figured out your way, it begins to be a place, or at least it was for me, it was a place that I was like, okay, yeah, I do, I do belong here. I can, I can show up. Um, but it's, it's the creation of new habits which requires thought and practice and conscious effort. So it does take a little bit of psychic energy as well as physical energy. I'm glad you hit on that word psychic energy, because that is something that's been coming up a lot lately with folks that I've been talking to where they know what they need to do. They know if they were doing it, it would eventually get comfortable. But there's just this friction this friction between them and the action. And I see this with networking all the time, right? Um, I encourage people to network as much as possible, right? It, get out of their own heads and, and meet real people so that it's not just these like stories that, that, that are just ruminating, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and the pushback I get, uh, a pushback I got yesterday from a group that I was talking to um, is just like this overwhelming fear that arises and it's not just mental it's physical right it 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 shakes them in their adrenaline it shakes them in their um like hands and in the their ability to even speak and and form sentences and you know as someone with anxiety i i can relate to it obviously i've put in yeah. a lot of work over the years to get over it but um yeah. what what are some of the things that you've seen in either your coaching clients or in your uh, therapy work um, that has helped people navigate those, those really tough um, fear-based, maybe self-doubt-based, um, and especially with the imposter syndrome, like the fear of getting caught. Like that's really what people are afraid of. It's not, I feel like an imposter, it's I'm going to be caught as an imposter, right? Mm -hmm. So like, what are the things that people can do um, aside from just, you know, launching themselves into this, having maybe a breakdown in the middle of it. Um, what are some of the things people can do to, to get themselves to a place where they can even start that? Um, whether it's accepting themselves more or changing their view of the situation or, or any, any sort of mental or physical um, actions they can take. Yeah. I mean, the first place that I would go, Martin, is just really a, a, an acknowledgement. When you talk about how this can show up in the body and, you know, people are shaking and physically immobilized and you know there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of work out there um uh, and uh, in kind of somatic work and you know vessel van der Kolt's work of uh, of um, the body keeps the score and the idea that we carry trauma 
um, in our bodies. And that's not only trauma we've experienced, but that can be passed down intergenerationally and transgenerationally. And, uh, and I would say that's very real, right? So first of all, listen to your body um, and, and, and notice what's going on. But then also at the same time, if you find yourself triggered or charged around a certain issue or a topic, is it is noted first of all bring yourself back into the present moment there's some you know that I, I don't need to talk about grounding techniques and centering techniques because there's books and websites and ted talks and the whole she, shebang out there for people to access um but bringing yourself into the present moment and uh, and finding you know asking yourself what evidence there actually is real evidence in consensus reality to support the fears and worries that you're having is is one thing the other the big thing that i like to 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 do with people is you know when we talk about imposter syndrome that usually shows up as this inner voice right that tells you that you can't when you think you when you when you want to be able to or tells you that you don't belong when you wish you did belong or tells you that you don't have the skills or that you're going to get found out or whatever it is and there is a i guess there's a there's a popular thought around You've got to obliterate that voice and you know there's lots of places that just like smash through the board walk across coals lie on nails i'm like stop stop this thing this part of you I, this voice i think of as being a part of you so if it's a part of you the last thing you want to do is obliterate it because you're obliterating a part of yourself and that's not going to work out for anyone or anything so I always encourage people to name their inner critic, like give it a name and give it, embody it in some way. Like, what does it look like? Who does it look like? And get to know them because that inner critic, that part of you exists with a purpose. And it's probably existing with a purpose of, of system protection, of protecting you as an individual. So, to me, your inner critic isn't there to be obliterated. It's, it's there to be befriended. And it's there to be understood. And it's there to be thanked because that inner critic is showing up to let you know that there's something important happening and that there might be a lesson to be learned. And so instead of trying to ignore it, push it away, squash it, obliterate it, let's talk to it. Let's Imagine we're sitting in two cozy armchairs in front of a roaring fire on a cold day outside and get in conversation with our inner critic and ask, ask it what its intention for us is. Um, help it to understand that the way it's behaving is anti-ethical to its intention and get into some sort of relationship and rapport with it. And then all of a sudden you start to be able to work through that imposter syndrome, not against it. I really love that. And I think what you're sort of um, hitting on here is that internal family systems type of therapy approach, right? Where you're getting to know all the different parts of yourself. Um, exactly. Can you, we're, we're sort of hitting on a few different, um, maybe deep techniques here <laughs> that maybe the listeners don't, don't fully understand. Can you give a little bit of a breakdown on internal family systems and like what that looks like and, and maybe even touch on somatic therapy as well um, as different ways that people can manage these anxieties? Yeah, so internal family systems comes from the person that, that, that originated the work is a, is a guy called Richard Schwartz. Um, and um, he, he posited that we are, we are, our inner world is peopled um, with, uh, with, with various different parts of us. Um, and that, that we capital S self me, um, has within, within, a, within me, a system of parts and these parts, have, there are two, two sorts of parts. There's parts that protect and there's parts that need protecting and the parts that protect often show up in our world as behaviors and aspects of us that we have some sort of conscious awareness of it's a behavior or an aspect that we don't really want to do that, but, but, but might also get really applauded for, right? So maybe our imposter, our inner critic drives high performance that, that drives 
great delivery of great work and our bosses are like that i you know when you do this it's great and and we're like cool great i'm getting rewarded for something that about me that i don't really like and and so we hang on to these parts and and but if we understand that there is this high anxious part of us that is that is driven to perform and deliver to the highest extent sometimes by sometimes as as to the detriment of our relationships or to the detriment of our peace of mind or to the detriment of our sleep or whatever it is um if we can understand that actually that part is 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 its job is to protect a another part of us that needs protecting which might be a younger part of us that holds pain or shame or guilt and that we don't want that pain shame or guilt feelings because we don't like those feelings so instead outcomes this part so internal family systems is a great body of work and 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 it will help you to understand those parts of you that are at play and will help you to get into a new relationship with those parts what i love about internal family systems is that it it really does want to accept all aspects of us and welcome and include all aspects of our internal internal family of systems a system of family um, and rather than trying to obliterate it and then there's the somatic the world of somatic psychology which which really lets us know you know back in the olden days when there were coal mines lots of coal mines um and before we had you know um i guess advanced technology the miners would often go down the coal mine and would be carrying a canary in a birdcage. And the reason why they would do that is because if there was any gas, any noxious gases, the canary would be asphyxiated and the crew would know that they need to get the heck out of there. I think of the body as our own personal canary in the coal mine. Because if we are tuned into our bodies, and so many of us are tuned into our all up here, and we, and we don't pay attention to what's happening in our bodies um, for a myriad of reasons. But when we start to pay attention to our bodies, it can give us signals and signs that there is something going on, that there is something that alerting us to pain or trauma that we have carried from the past that is being activated in the here and now. And so somatic Somatic psych, uh, psychotherapy really works at, at a very, at its basic level, really works with that somatic awareness to be able to, to um, uh, bring it into increasing conscious awareness so that we may heal the parts of us that are holding the pain and the trauma of the past that, that might be out of conscious awareness. Because, you know, when we're little and we experience traumatic events, we often don't have the psychological wherewithal capacities capabilities to be able to process it and understand it so it has to go somewhere and it gets stored it gets stored if it doesn't get processed i love that breakdown you did such a good job of going into both of those different approaches and i i actually just finished reading the book uh the body keeps the score so i'm glad you mentioned <laughs> that and i highly recommend anyone else to read it um uh, and it brings us back to this idea of acceptance and awareness and uh, circling back to what we started with, the congruency versus the authenticity idea and really focusing in on that congruency. I think this is maybe where a lot of people struggle with um, feeling like they belong because um, if we are in a state where we feel like an imposter or we're just feeling insecure in any way, shape or form, and then we're thrust into a job search where we have to sell ourselves and promote ourselves and market ourselves and marketing for most people feels very kind of salesy and grimy and gross. Right. Um, I always get this, um, this comment from people where they're like, I feel like I'm being dishonest. I feel like I'm lying. And they, they almost feel like they have to lead with the, I need a job message, like desperately first in order just to feel like they're being true, like being honest. Um, yeah. And I go, if you're on a dating app, you don't start with let's get married, right? <laughs> like, even if that's maybe what you want at the end of it, uh, you got to yeah. build some sort of trust in the foreground there. But um, when it comes to this idea of faking it till you make it or um, any of those like sort of, I, I get asked the question <laughs> here and there in a very weird way. It's like, how much am I allowed to lie? <laughs> and I'm always like, well, wait a second. Is it actually a lie or do you just feel insecure? And then like, 
where is that gray area and what's a white lie and what's a real lie? It, it's, it's very messy, but when people are feeling like they're not being honest or their, their version of honesty in their head is maybe to talk about all the worst things, what would you say to them to, in order to better um, become more congruent with themselves and see the full picture? Yeah, well, I mean, I think where, where I want to start is with, a, with an acknowledgement that for many people in this world who walk around in bodies that are black or brown, disabled in some way, uh, women, um, members of the LGBTQIA2 plus community, we, we, have, we have built a life around code switching, um, around compartmentalizing uh, and around covering because the, the, the dominant social narrative is geared towards anyone that is white, straight, cisgender, male, and non-disabled. And so in, in where there's a, there's a, there are many people in this world that are every day asking themselves the questions, what version of me can I really be right now? And it's all in the service of needing to fit in and needing to, and, the, and the kind of prime directive of wanting to belong. And so I just want to acknowledge that, that there are, there are different challenges for different people when they go searching for a job, particularly based on who's doing the interview, right? And what kind of questions are they asking? And what's the kind of cultural landscape of the organization that I am trying to get a job at? There are so many things beyond imposter syndrome, right? That, it, that are basic social location, identity related issues and topics that people have to face. And, um, and that can cause people to feel like they're living a lie in and of themselves, right? Like just, just the idea of like, you know, when I walk into this meeting, what kind of gay can I be? Can I be the, hey, queen, hey, girl, kind of gay? Or have I got to be corporate gay and, you know, and just not even talk about my husband, not even talk about, you know, what I did at the weekend. And um, so there's all of that going on as well as the the kind of the imposter syndrome. Do I deserve this? And, and how can I and how can I sell myself? Because it's it's what version of myself am I selling? Or what version of myself will be bought, right? Like, because that's that's what we're asking ourselves. Yeah, and I, I see this a lot with um, neurodivergence as well. Um, right. Working with um, autism, there's this. Everyone on the internet is saying, "Be yourself," right? And they're like, "Yeah." Whenever I do that, people don't like it. Like, it's just, and, and this goes back. It's like, well, okay, being yourself, but it's it's never true authenticity. It's like some other version when you're in a corporate environment, it's, it's authenticity within these bounds and the bounds are different depending on who you are and where you're at and what the corporation is and all those different things. So when it comes to that, like code switching and having to sort of put on these different masks for different situations, um, how have you seen that impact people in, in positive, negative, neutral ways what what sort of things do you what if what impact does this have and do you see it getting better or do you see it kind of maybe even getting more difficult in the digital environment i mean the the, the compartmentalization and the code switching and the covering i've seen it have surface level benefits which is you get a job or you get invited to join a club or you get to go and have dinner or lunch with the cool kids, but I've never had it. I've never seen it have long-term psychological benefits because it eats away. It jet, it gradually just chips away to a, to a place of, um, or to a point of, um, we can lose touch with the, 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 the me that I really am, you know, or the you that you really are. So I, I, I don't think it is, I don't think it's neutral. And I also don't think that there are any long-term benefits to it, but the, sh the short-term gain is fitting in. Um, and actually what you don't want, what, what, I, what I think we don't want is a workplace where people have to fit in. I think we, we need workplaces where people can experience belonging.
We interrupt today's episode to let you know about Career Therapy's Unstuck Coaching Program. If you're feeling paralyzed by job search procrastination and unsure of what to do next in your career, we're here to help. Each month as a member, you will get access to two one-on-one coaching calls, unlimited virtual chat with your coach via Slack, invitations to bi-weekly group coaching sessions, and lifetime access to our eight-part job search curriculum. Want to take your search to the next level? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free 15-minute consultation to chat with me today and see if coaching is right for you. Now back to our show. I just wanted to dig deeper into that belonging piece. So like what makes up belonging in your mind and, and how can companies and or individuals who work at those companies um, improve the ability to belong? Right. So I, I, I say that belonging is an experience that we have. So, you know, think about the last time you went to a place and you knew you didn't belong. There was, there was a cognitive aspect to it. There was an emotional aspect to it. And there was a physical aspect to it. It's like a whole body experience of this is not my place. I do not belong here and I'm going to get the F out. Um, so belonging is an experience and it's it's an experience that we have when we are um when we feel psychologically safe and i say psychological safety is a a, a quality that is true when it's not expensive to be ourselves you can't have psychological safety without inclusion and i say that inclusion is a behavior and inclusion is a behavior in terms of the, and I talk about not only the way in which a manager or a leader or a colleague behaves and act, react and interact, but also how the organization behaves. And I mean, through its policies, its programs, its platforms and its protocols, are they all geared towards inclusion? Now you can't have inclusion without diversity and representation. And to me, diversity is a fact. It either is or is not present. And so when you look around and you ask yourself, are are there people around here that are like me? And are there people around here that are not like me? If the answer to both of those questions is yes, you're likely to experience diversity. So diversity plus inclusion equals belonging. But diversity doesn't always lead to inclusion. And inclusion doesn't always lead to you know, to, to belonging, but you can't have belonging, the experience of belonging without the other two. And what are some of the, have you seen any examples where it is being done well, any companies or any individuals or any um, organizations that are actually able to implement this? (laughs) Um, I, you know, I, this is a really hard one to answer because, um, you know, anyone tuning in will be able to go to my website and look at the look at the brands that I work with and will draw some inferences about what I'm saying. So I, I feel like I want to answer this in quite a political way, which is I think there's there's just work to do. And I, I, I don't think this job of creating a workplace where people can be themselves is ever going to end, right? Like it's not, it's like when brands go into the space of, oh yeah, we, we have done diversity. We have a, we have hired a head of diversity and, you know, so that's good. Now we can get on with the, the business of being a capitalist economy instead. Like I, 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 it's not something that is, that is finite. And so, because the world changes and, um, stuff happens in the world that makes us feel unsafe see texas see buffalo see the second anniversary of george floyd's murder so there's always things that are just bubbling up in the in in society that are that are going to shift and change and impact and create different experiences for people so the 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 brands that i see doing it really well and i'm not going to name them but the brands that i see doing it really well are are the ones that um are are the ones that don't just slap a rainbow on their logo during june or that don't just put a black square on their instagram feeds to show that they you know to, and that, that, that they're not performing 
inclusion. They are, they are taking it seriously through a set of commitments that they will publish, maybe to their staff, but maybe more broadly. They are making change in, their, in the system of their organization. And I mean, they are making sure that people um, who are making decisions um, uh, you know, that group of people are a diverse group of people. They are changing policy. Those are the brands that are doing it well. And it doesn't, it, and, and you, it doesn't take too much effort on anyone's behalf to be able to go and find out who those brands are if they want to. Cool. Yeah. And, and we've had, um, folks on the podcast in the past talking about that, like performative marketing piece of it. And I think that yeah. that also plays into the confusion that job seekers can have when trying to find companies to work for that will be inclusive, right? And, and, and where they will feel a sense of belonging. Cause, you know, I talk with folks all the time and, you know, culture is that word that's thrown around. You got to find a place with good culture. You got to find a culture that you fit in with and all these different things around culture. And, and then they go into the interview and at the end of the interview, they get asked the question, what questions do you have for me? And they go, what's the culture like here? And I always say oh. that's a terrible question to ask because you're, you're asking someone who's being paid by the company to represent the company <laughs> what the culture is like. They're, of course, going to say it's amazing, right? They're not going to yeah. say like, I actually kind of can't stand my boss or I'm going to quit in two weeks. <laughs> like, you're not going to get those answers. And so what are some of the ways um, that people can figure out what, the reality is in these companies when so much of the marketing can be so convincing. Yeah, beautiful, um, beautiful question. I I make I make a distinction between culture and climate, and I say that a company's culture uh, or cultural fabric, as I call it, is a statement of intent. It is the set of words that describe the the organization has or desires in terms of the vibe it wants to create for its people, the kind of company it wants to be. And that, that typically looks like a set of, you know, a mission, a vision, a set of values, maybe some behaviors, an employer value proposition, all of that stuff that, you know, decent brands will put on their website. So you can go read it, right? So I would be encouraging people instead to think about the climate and to ask questions about the climate. And so, um, Climate is our lived experience of that culture. And climate shows up in the way we make decisions, the way we handle conflict, um, the way we talk about each other when we're not in the room, um, how we build relationships. So I might be asking, instead of, instead of like, what's the culture like? I might ask people, I might encourage people to say, how, how does this mission and the values show up in the day-to-day -day of the organization? That's what I would be encouraging people to ask because that will that will be a surprising question for an interviewer, and and it will it and the answer that you get will probably tell you a lot more than if you say what's the culture like. I like that, and it it also plays in because you mentioned like you know they put on the window dressing and then go right back to you know the capitalist. <laughs> Let's go make some dollars, right? Um, but what are because obviously there needs, unfortunately, there always needs to be some sort of incentive, right? And there's there's human centered incentives and there's financially centered incentives. But what are some of the incentives that? let's say, I don't know, a company's listening in right now and we're trying to convince them to think about these things. What are some of the incentives that um, are the benefits of creating really you know, good belonging spaces? The, the science on this is really, really clear, right? Pay attention to employee satisfaction and, and employee attrition. And many years ago, the retail company Sears produced this piece of research called the, the Sears Value Profit Chain that made a direct link between percentage increases, employee satisfaction and percentage increases in profit. So there's a commercial reason for that. And then employee attrition, you know, the lower the employee, the, the, you know, there are costs associated with employee attrition. Some of that is like kind of wooden dollars, but some of it is real dollars, like the cost to replace the cost to hire, but also the cost for, um, 
the cost of uh, lowered productivity in new hires, the cost of brain drain and knowledge walking out the door. I think the, the Society of Human Resource Management will say that it's anywhere upwards of 50% of someone's salary is the cost to replace them. So, you know, that you, it's as simple as that. And there's a, there's, a, there's a correlation between employee satisfaction and employee attrition. When one goes up, the other one goes down. And what you want is employee satisfaction going up and employee attrition going down to acceptable levels, you know, at, at, at levels that are manageable. So there's the, I mean, so there's two very clear numbers driven reasons why. And then if you're in a client facing business, which is most businesses, right, whether it's, you know, a professional services or retail or travel and tourism or banking, customer facing clients like to have their people. Clients like consistency, customers and clients like consistency in what, what it is that they're receiving. They like their person. And so lowered attrition is going to also equal increased client satisfaction. It's, you know, it's, to, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a beautiful meme that floats around. It's of like the CF, the CFO and the CEO and the, and the CFO says, what if we invest all of this money in these people and they leave? And the CEO says, what if we don't and they stay, you know? <laughs> I love that one. That's such a good one. I love that one. <laughs> yeah. Or it's like the person, uh, the, the, the employee who makes like a, a $6 million mistake and the, and it's like, all right, we have to fire him. It's like, I just invested $6 million into this person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I think this also like, it plays into this, um, unfortunate dichotomy or like at odds that people are at in the job search where, you know, we have these systems that are supposed to make things better, right? We have online applications and we have all these things that are supposed to make things better. And I always find it so contradictory um, how a lot of these things are talked about, especially in like the diversity space. Cause it's like, don't, you know, we, we, we know that there's stats out there that your name can cause a huge impact or a picture can cause a huge impact on your ability to get called in for a resume and things like that. And so there's a push to remove names and pictures and things like that in order to get more um, equitable hiring, right? But then you flip to the other side and it's like, everyone needs to have a LinkedIn and a great photo and a brand. <laughs> like all these, And so there's just this like push and pull between the two sides of trying to fix things in, in both directions. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times, especially, you know, in, with the neurodivergent people that I'm working with or, or in a lot of different situations where, you know, we're in a situation where there's a power dynamic that needs to be um, acknowledged, where if you have rent to pay and you need money, you know, there's this, how picky can we be? How much can we push these companies? How... Um, what level should be accepted, right? And, and that's like a big thing that comes up. I, I've been told many times, like, we have to change the system. This is terrible. This is not good for people's mental health. Like, we have to change it. And I'm like, I agree, but I have no idea how to change the hiring process for 10 to 100,000 different companies, right? And so we get put in these awful situations. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, when it comes to, um, people like standing up for themselves and being able to advocate for themselves. Um, there is a big, great resignation happening and there seems to be a shift. I'm curious, what, how have you seen the shift developing and what do you think is happening in the minds of, of job seekers and employees in, in the current world today? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say, sticking up for yourself is probably the an activity of the privileged, right? Like um, I, throughout my career, if, if, you know, my, I had a 25 year long career in corporate world across a range of different sectors. And many times I have been told, you know, could you just tone it down? And all, all coded around, you know, my queer identity. It wasn't until I was in a C-suite position where I felt like I was, I was in a position of power when somebody says, you know, like DDS in that next meeting, could you just be a little bit less? And I'm like, a little bit less what? They're like, you know, just a little bit less. I was like, what do you mean? And, and the person said, well, you know, just a little bit less gay. And 
at that moment, I felt like I was in a powerful enough position to rebuff it and to say, well, could you be a little bit less straight? And this person said, I, I don't know how to do that. And I was like, yeah, okay, exactly, right? So I think standing up for ourselves, pushing back um, for anyone that has an identity that comes from a historically excluded community is a hard thing to do, particularly when there are power dynamics at play. So I just want to say that. And then we, you know, you talk about the, the great resignation, which is in, in effect a, a way of people kind of standing up for themselves, the workforce saying, actually, no, wait a minute, this isn't good enough. And, and I actually think that the great resignation, um, I, I recently returned it the great realization. And, you know, I think it, over the last two years where we've all had our individual experience of this collective large-scale trauma of what's happened over the last couple of years, we've been asking ourselves some, some existential questions. And, and professionally, that has mean a lot of us have been asking ourselves, am I doing what I, what I want to do? Is, it, is, is what I'm doing in alignment with my identity and my purpose? And for some people, the answer has been no. So they've gone off and, you know, career changed and, you know, traveled the world or done whatever they needed to do. And for a lot of people, they've said, yeah, what I'm doing is, is totally in alignment with who I am and who, and who I want to be. So the next question they've asked is, is, is where, where I'm doing it, where I want to do it. <clears throat> and when those workplaces aren't able to offer meaningful work that is purposeful or full of purpose and um, a, a workplace where people can experience belonging, people are leaving. And so in this great resignation where lots of HR leaders and CEOs are saying there's a shortage of talent, I'm saying actually there isn't a shortage of talent. There's actually just more discerning talent. And the organizations that are able to demonstrate clearly work that is meaningful, purposeful, and a place where you can belong are the organizations that are going to win. And, and that's how we stand up for ourselves is by asking those questions. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of plays into that, like vote with your wallet, but like vote with the company you work with. Right. And I've seen people turn down higher salaries to work with companies that have better environments. And, and that is, that's something that I don't think I saw much, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Right. And uh, it was always just the, the more money, more money, more money. And uh, so often I'm seeing people be like, maybe I don't need a, you know, a new car every couple of years. Maybe I can actually just have a, a, a decent life or like spend time with my family or whatever the thing might be. Um, right. And when it comes to technology, um, bringing it back around to like the isolation that people can feel being at home, working remote, trying to do the job search, you know, in this little room with a computer, right? Um, what are some ways that technology that you've seen people leverage technology um, to improve their ability to advocate for themselves and improve their ability to uh, find opportunities or connect with communities or anything along those lines? Have you seen anything positive coming from the technological revolution that's happening? I have. Yeah, I I. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take credit for this because it came to me from a from a woman who used to work a black woman who used to work on my team when I when I had a job in an advertising agency, um, <clears throat> and that advertising agency used Google Workspace, so there was like Google Chat, just the same as like Slack or any any chat bot, right? Like anything, and and she said what instead of what she had been missing was the dropping by people's desks type of thing. And so what she had started to do was to utilize the chat function as a, I'm dropping by your desk. So, hey, how's it going? Have you got a minute? And then instead of them playing out the rest of that conversation through chat, jumping onto a quick video call and just having a five minute video call, which is exactly the same as having a five minute desk to desk conversation, it's just done with different intention. And that, that seems so simple to me, but yet it seems so hard for people to wrap their heads around because 
there's something about you know when you wake up in the morning if you're working from home and you wait means if you if you're of a certain age like me you have to wake up in the night to go to the bathroom and if you wake up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom look i'm at work already you know <laughs> or or like if i want to eat dinner and and i you know i'm living in a one bedroom apartment my work desk is my dining table if i if if i'm even fortunate to live in a place that's big enough to have a bloody dining table some people work from their beds in in an off in a hybrid office world so i'm sleeping at work and so there's this enmeshment and and so there's a so part of that is about being able to reclaim your own space and and whether that's reclaiming your own mental space or reinstigating some of the boundaries that we used to have when we weren't in a hybrid world so those what would what would you what would you have been doing if you were going to if you were going to the office well i would be instead of having a meeting i'd be commuting I'm like okay well then commute what what how can you commute i know you're commuting from the bedroom to the dining table but what about if you actually went out of the house and walked and did a commute and or had some space or but like whatever it is reclaiming that which was yours that which that that which is yours anyway we've just given it away we, we're constantly giving more and more away so there's some there's some things that you can do to unmesh yourself from that situation i really appreciate you laying it out like that because yeah it, it brings us back to that idea you mentioned at the beginning of building those deeper levels of rapport with ourselves right i think part of the issue here is that sometimes we go into autopilot and we let the anxieties or the fears or the insecurities drive for too long and being able to do a little bit of that internal family systems, get a little bit of understanding and a little bit of space, take back the wheel and then actually ask yourself, what do I want my day to look like? What do I need this to look like in order to be a healthy situation? And, you know, I even ask people all the time, I'm like, when are you not job seeking? And they go, what? <laughs> like you have to turn off at some point, right? And take care of yourself. And I think with a lot of what we're talking about, it's it's all about that. Like, how do you take care of yourself in these difficult situations, right? Yeah. Um, and so again, I'm gonna push your book. You can be yourself here. Um, but DDS, where can folks find more about you and and see your work? Yeah, so you can you can follow me on LinkedIn um, or you can jump over to my website, www.soultrained.com. Um, there's a page on that website called Shift Happens and in Shift Happens, you'll find podcasts and blogs and videos and stuff like that. Um, and you're always welcome to reach out to me directly at dds at soultrained.com. Wonderful. And if there was one last thing you could encourage folks to do to build that inner congruency, what would you say? Stop, breathe, and notice your present moment awareness. I love it. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Martin. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you found this conversation to be helpful, please like and subscribe wherever you are listening. We also appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word and get these ideas out to more job seekers looking to build their careers and improve their lives just like you. If you'd like to learn more about career therapy and see our different coaching options, you can head over to careertherapy.com to learn more. Thank you again for stopping by. We wish you all the best in the future of your career. Have a good one.